Hi there, and welcome to The Briefing Room. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein, joined here in our Washington newsroom by Catherine Falders from our White House team and Allie Rogan from our Capitol Hill team. A big day because it was the first briefing by Sarah Sanders in a month uh, <laughs> since the November election, since, since Jeff Sessions was attorney general. Lots changed oh since then, so yes. <laughs> a lot of news to get to. Uh, but we want to start, Catherine, with a story that you've been reporting out mm -hmm. pretty extensively. The uh, big announcement from Bob Mueller's team overnight last night that Paul Manafort, uh, according to his team, is no longer cooperating. Uh, they have asked the court to uh, to step in on this, uh, Manafort, uh, according to this to this uh, uh, pleading and uh, filing from the mm -hmm. Mueller team, has not been providing honest information, and Mueller's team says they can prove it in court. Uh, our John Carl asked about the president's tweet storm on Mueller and Manafort and what it all means. Take a listen. Yeah, Sarah, given what the president said this morning that. Robert Mueller is ruining people's lives. Is he considering a pardon for Paul Manafort or for others who were prosecuted, have been prosecuted? Uh, I'm not aware of any conversations uh, for anyone's pardon uh, involving this process and, 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 if I, and if I can follow up, he also said this morning <coughs> Mueller is doing tremendous damage to the criminal justice system. If that's true, is he considering picking up the phone, calling his acting attorney general, and saying fire Robert Mueller? Uh, look, I think that the president has had uh, Robert Mueller doing his job for the last two years, and um, he could have taken action at any point, and he hasn't. So, so we'll, let that, we'll let that speak to itself. He has no intent to do anything. See? So these storylines could very much be relevant. A lot of people saying maybe Paul Manafort isn't cooperating because he thinks that he might get a pardon from President Trump. What do you think the meaning of this pleading, of this filing from Mueller last night means? Yeah, well, well what I think is significant here is not so much the lack of cooperation. We reported um, earlier this month that the talks were breaking down between Mueller and Manafort. Um, Mueller wasn't getting the answers he wanted out of Manafort. But what's most significant here in this new filing and what um, Mueller is alleging is that he lied, right? It's there alleging Manafort lied um, about a number of topics. They say they can prove it. Um, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Manafort's team says that this isn't true. So I think the significant thing to look for here will be that report that Mueller's team releases, the details of these lies, the extent to which he lied, the topics um, he lied about, and how consequential um, they are and, you know, his overall role in the Mueller investigation. With regard to the pardon, you think about the legal strategy here and you say uh, he pled guilty he was a cooperating government witness. He avoided those legal fees of a second trial, um, but and agreed with broad, a quote, broad cooperation deal with the special counsel, no topics off the table, and then goes in there and lies. So you think a lot of legal experts, of course, are saying that uh, maybe it's a Hail Mary and that he's hoping for a pardon. And the president, who now has his own attorney general, uh, who's overseeing this probe right. and, and maybe hearing things from him, clearly has this on his mind today as he engages in a new series of attacks, a redoubled set of attacks against Mueller. Yeah, absolutely. It's clearly on his mind, especially after this uh, Manafort news came in. And he was attacking him uh, last week, I believe, when uh, we reported his frustration with answering uh, Mueller's questions. He submitted, uh, the president submitted a list of the answers uh, to Mueller's questions, but at the same time said, you know, I can't believe what he's asking witnesses and all that. So. And, and Ali Rogan, I know there's stirrings on Capitol Hill about bringing mm -hmm. back a, a protect Mueller 
bill, uh, yeah. some kind of legislation that would uh, insulate the special counsel's office. Mitch McConnell hasn't liked this idea in the past. No, look, but with every developing news cycle that deals with Bob Mueller, every time the president starts tweeting about him, we on the Hill ask senators, do you think the president is going to fire Bob Mueller or take steps to do so? And do you think that requires legislation to prevent him from doing that? Every time lately, senators, mostly Republicans, have said, absolutely not. We do not think this is going to happen. The president has not indicated as such. The difference now, of course, is that Matt Whitaker is in nominal charge. And so that conversation has shifted a little bit. Jeff Flake, as a Senate Republican, is one who has uh, repeatedly requested that a bill protecting the integrity of the special counsel, it would put in safeguards to prevent the president simply from firing him at will. Uh, he's requested a vote on that. And in fact, now some Senate Republicans are saying, look, even if they don't agree with this Mueller protection bill that is getting a little more traction, they at least want to vote on it so that uh, they can move on. And I think it would send a signal to the president that, uh, look, uh, even if it did fail, it would show that there is this is something that is being considered and could come to the floor again if things do get a little more looking like he might fire Mueller. All right, Ali, stand by for our other topics. Catherine, thanks for joining us. We're going to get back to reporting. We want to move down to Mississippi, where the final federal voting of the 2018 midterms is underway today. The Senate runoff between the, the incumbent Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith and the Democratic candidate Mike Espy. Our man on the ground in Jackson, Mississippi, ABC News' Tom Yamas has been reporting this out. And, and Tom, I have been struck by the conversations that you've been having with voters. Uh, a lot of the national coverage has had this race really about race. Mike Espy, who's African-American, versus Cindy Hyde-Smith, who's made a series of racially insensitive comments. What's your sense on the ground for how big this issue is and people aware of the national implications today? You know, everyone talks about it. Everyone's talking about the, the public hanging comment. People are aware of it. The supporters of Senator City Highsmith tell me that they think it was a dumb comment, but that her words were taken out of context and used against her in a political sense, that a lot of the, the, the racial sort of remarks that had been made about, about her past have been taken out of context. That being said, they said they're sticking with her. A, a lot of the people I spoke to yesterday at the Trump oh, rally oh, essentially said, if President Trump is with Senator City Highsmith, then I'm going to stick with Senator City Highsmith. We're here in Hines County. This is where Jackson, Mississippi is the capital. Just behind me, people have been voting all day. Uh, this is the biggest Democratic county in all of Mississippi. Hillary Clinton won here by 70 percent. Um, this is only, you know, anecdotal. This is only us being here for, for a few hours. But we're meeting a lot of people that are voting for Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, which is not a, a good sign for Mike Espy. Again, this is only one polling location. But an Espy supporter we talked to who um, has been phone banking for, for Espy, who's so motivated, really wants to send Espy to the Senate said she's a little worried because the turnout looks very low here. And, and, and she said their thinking was the turnout had to be high. They had to drive out their base, their Democratic base, if they had any chance whatsoever. Because, you know, you'll, you'll remember, of course, in, in the midterm race, in the, in the original special election, there were three candidates, the Libertarian taking 16 percent of the vote. You know, Espy and Hyde-Smith were, were neck and neck, <coughs> but, but the, the Libertarian took 16 percent of the vote. If she could pull off enough votes from, from that Libertarian, Chris McDaniel, and I did meet some McDaniel voters at the Trump rally who said they voted for McDaniel. They're now going to vote um, uh, for the Republican in this race. Uh, it could be game over. And, and Rick, as you know, we've had no reliable polling. So it's unclear if this is gonna, a really a tight race or if it's going to be a blowout. But the issue of racism, the issue of race and the history of Mississippi has been at the forefront. And I got to tell you, a lot of the SB voters have told me they like SB because they believe he's the future of Mississippi, whereas the current sitting senator they believe represents the past of Mississippi.
Yeah, and it is, a, it is a past that isn't that much forgotten in the national consciousness. And, and Tom, as you mentioned, turnout so important, especially three weeks after the actual election. This is the Tuesday after Thanksgiving weekend. A lot of people have to be reminded about this all over again. President Trump did his part yesterday with a series of rallies. And at one of the rallies, Tom, as you know, uh, the, the president uh, mentioned uh, Mike Espy and said, yeah, how does this guy fit in with Mississippi? We should note that, uh, that as the Espy family goes back generations in the state of Mississippi and that uh, Mississippi happens to be the state that has the highest proportion, the highest percentage of African-Americans in the nation, hasn't sent an African-American to the Senate since the Reconstruction era. How was that comment received on the ground? Right. You know, it was an interesting comment. I was there for it when he said it, and, and he was saying it in the context of uh, that, that SB was too liberal, essentially, for Mississippi. That's essentially what he was saying without really giving the context that you just gave about SB's uh, uh, career here, his political career here, and the history of his family here, along with the other points you mentioned as well. Um, but it's something he wanted to run. And, and one thing they mentioned, Rick, which is so interesting to me, I mean, and we saw this during the midterms, but was Brett Kavanaugh. He brought Lindsey Graham to Tupelo. Lindsey Graham spoke at that Tupelo rally. And, and this, is, this is all going to connect to the larger point you were asking. But Graham essentially, the way Trump set him up was that Graham was the person who saved Brett Kavanaugh. And, and Senator Hyde-Smith voted for Brett Kavanaugh. And, and Mike Espy would probably be a no for Brett Kavanaugh. So the president trying to tie all this back in to his agenda, to try to make this about himself, because he knows if he can drive out his base, then the Republicans win here. And Rick, I got to tell you, they had to be worried about this because the president usually does sort of these, these running gun stops. He gets here, he speaks for a little bit, and then he pops back out to another state. He did two stops here in the northern part of the state and the southern part of the state. He also did a business roundtable. Besides him, what struck me was that Lindsey Graham was here, Mike Pence was here, the chair of the Republican Party, and the head of the Trump campaign were all here rallying for Hyde-Smith. Well, it's the only show in town. I know you're going to be following it all night long uh, tonight on World News and tomorrow on GMA. Tom Yamas, our thanks to you for uh, reporting on the ground in Mississippi today. Thank you, Tom. I want to move on to the economic news that rocketed through Washington yesterday, the announcement from General Motors that it will be closing a series of production plants, including several in the United States, uh, including, including ones in, uh, in Maryland, uh, Ohio, and Michigan. Uh, that announcement uh, met with uh, some anger from the White House that actually escalated today. Take a look at the tweets that President Trump uh, fired off just in the last couple of hours. Uh, he said he was very disappointed with General Motors and their CEO, who he happened to meet with just yesterday, for closing those plants. Well, nothing is being closed in Mexico and China. The U.S. saved General Motors, and this is the thanks we get. And now we are looking at cutting all GM subsidies, including those for electric cars. He went on to talk about how GM made a bet on China years ago that he says is not going to pay off. The president vowing to protect American workers. Uh, David Curley has been helping cover this story for us here at ABC News. And David, this does not fit well with the president's agenda and the argument that he has made about his ability to revive American manufacturing. It doesn't. And he does have a point, though, Rick, and that is that the government did bail out GM in 2008. But this restructuring that GM is talking about is actually taking place in the auto industry as a whole. In fact, Ford announced a number of changes earlier this year, quietly, but they did a lot of what GM is doing as well. And it is downsizing and right-sizing because the car industry is changing. Now, GM tried to spin this, that the plant closings and the layoffs are because of getting rid of cars. 
uh, sedans, that people are buying SUVs and trucks. And Ford kind of did the same thing six, seven, eight months ago as well, saying they were going to concentrate on their F-150, the truck that is the most popular selling vehicle in the United States of America. So part of this is restructuring by GM. But it really, uh, the way it kind of landed as a thud, whereas Ford kind of made it quiet and, I mean, they did talk about it publicly, but it wasn't like 14,000 jobs are going away and we're closing down five plants. Um, but everybody's talking about in the car industry that they're moving away from the sedans and they're going to electric, autonomous, and hybrid cars. Uh, but this, this, it'll be interesting to see whether the president can actually do anything about what he called the subsidies. These are the federal tax, tax credits you get if you buy an electric car, $7,500 basically that you get to write off of your taxes. Can you take that away from one model and one car maker and not from another? Uh, we'll wait and see. But this is uh, a dilemma and the way it landed right before the holidays from General Motors, not great optics from the White House or really from the general public either. Yeah, David, Ali Rogan here with Rick on set. Uh, you talked about the subsidies a second ago. Have we heard from GM or any of these other auto companies about their reaction to the president threatening this? No, we haven't heard from GM, and we're, I don't think GM's going to say anything specific. Mary Barra has been apparently talking to Larry Kudlow, the economic advisor at the White House, and broke the news to him that uh, they were going to make this announcement. It's just, it's the timing and the amount that is very difficult, as we've heard from the president. He's being very vocal about how he feels about this. But this, if you watched what happened on Wall Street yesterday with GM stock, it went up because investors think, ah, GM's making some of the right moves for the future. Now, here's the great irony in all of this. Uh, we were talking about the climate change report and that a majority of Americans believe in climate change. And yet a majority of Americans are buying trucks and SUVs and not smaller sedans, which the car companies are getting out of. Now, you can argue that the mileage of the SUVs and the trucks much better and closer to some of those sedans. But Americans want those SUVs and the trucks, and that's what the car makers are going to build. And that's what GM is doing and restructuring to try and meet that consumer demand. Whether that's good for the country as far as climate change and the world in the long run, that's for others to debate. Uh, and in fact, David, uh, the, the GM just put out a statement not responding specifically to the president, but saying that they can remain committed to U.S. manufacturing. But before we let you go, you mentioned uh, the spin that we're hearing uh, from General Motors on this, on the timing of this. So the, the White House has engaged a little bit of spin as well. We heard from Larry Kudlow earlier today at the White House, uh, who reiterated what the president has been saying, that this is not connected in any way to tariffs. The president's economic uh, vision is going to be on international display at the G20 later this week. The president and Larry Kudlow again previewing the possibility of a trade war escalating even further with China. Is the administration right in saying that this has nothing to do with the tariffs that the Trump administration is intent on imposing? What I will tell you is what the car makers said when the tariffs were being talked about, and they said it is going to impact their business. In fact, GM was quite straightforward in saying they put a dollar amount of it, and it was the billions of dollars that would be impacted because of the tariffs, because so many of their parts come from outside of the country, so they're going to have to pay more for those parts that they put on the vehicles, and somebody's going to have to pay for that, and that's the American public. All right. David Curley reporting for us uh, here in Washington. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. You bet. And, you know, Rick, if we can just look at the political implications of this for a second, because that's what we do here. Um, the fact that this is happening in Ohio and Michigan, two states yeah. that President Trump won. But you look at uh, the margins in the Ohio Senate race just now. Sherrod Brown 
campaigned on a message very similarly to kind of the reaction that this uh, this leave, GM leaving is having, and he won his Senate race by a similar margin that President Trump won the Ohio presidential ballot in uh, 2016. So this could be a potent message for Democrats to capitalize on, given that GM is leaving these critical states with critical votes. Definitely a threat to the potential Trump coalition for 2020. Uh, let's spin up to your normal stomping grounds up <laughs> on Capitol Hill, uh, where House Democrats are gathered this afternoon to begin discussions that will culminate in a vote tomorrow on who should lead their new majority come January. Their vote uh, in tied inside the house, the, the house democratic conference for speaker of the house john parkinson's our man on the hill today and john uh, is there any drama left to this does nancy pelosi have this locked up and, and what are the the anti-pelosi folks who came into the post-election period pretty confident that they'd be able to block her what are they saying at this hour well, I think that when you look ahead to tomorrow, the expectation should be that Nancy Pelosi is going to lock up the speakership, at least the nomination that goes to the floor. Right now, the caucus rules dictate that all she needs to win is a simple majority of the caucus in order to earn that nomination. There was an effort by the Never Pelosi, Never Nancy uh, folks to try and change that rule to get a caucus vote of 218, which would then, you know, be a significant support on the floor to actually win the speakership. But Pelosi's telling her caucus, look, the rules in the past have always been the simple majority, and she's appealing to them to stick to that and support her if she wins a majority tomorrow in the, in the closed-door vote. And, and as of now, John, there, there actually isn't an opponent to Nancy Pelosi. How would it play out tomorrow? Is there another candidate that, that could receive or is expected to receive any votes? That's right. So when this all kicks off, first they're going to go through and they'll adopt the caucus rules. Then they're going to vote on the caucus chair. And when that's done, they're going to move ahead to speaker. Now, Pelosi is the only declared candidate right now. So if there's nobody else that's nominated, it takes two people to nominate a candidate for speaker. So if two people don't step up and nominate somebody else, there will be Pelosi supporters that ask for unanimous consent to be able to just uh, make her the, the nominee for speaker. So there may not be an actual vote where we see 206 people that are for Pelosi and you know 30 others that are against her. Uh, instead, we might just see that it was a voice vote that Pelosi was unopposed. Um, if there are an, uh, more candidates that are nominated to actually contend against her, then we could expect a readout where a, a, a winner is announced, and then perhaps we hear some sort of tally on how close uh, the Never Nancy people were able to knock her off. All right, uh, our John Parkinson uh, over on Capitol Hill will be following that storyline tonight and into tomorrow. Our thanks to John. Uh, and finally today, we want to we close with a very important story that continues to develop along the U.S. border with Mexico. Uh, we've seen the pictures in recent hours and days, tear gas canisters being fired, uh, women and children in some cases fleeing uh, the grounds. We're going to get to our reporter on the ground in just a moment, but I want to first play what President Trump said on the subject yesterday, asked by our colleague here at ABC News, Karen Travers, about these reports. You mentioned the rough people, you mentioned the criminals, but how did you feel when you saw the images of the women and children running from the tear gas? Well, I do say, why are they there? I mean, I have to start off. First of all, the tear gas is a very minor form of the tear gas itself. Uh, it's very safe. The ones that were suffering to a certain extent were the people that were putting it out there, but it's very safe. But you really say, why is a parent running up into an area where they know the tear gas is forming and it's going to be formed and they're running up with a child. And in some cases, you know, they're not the parents. These are people, they call them grabbers. They grab a child because they think they're going to have a certain uh, 
They're going to have a certain status by having a child. You know, you have certain advantages in terms of our crazy laws that, frankly, Congress should be changing. You know, if you change the laws, you wouldn't be having this problem. And joining us now from Tijuana, Mexico, where she's been reporting on the, the refugees, would-be refugees, uh, our, our ABC colleague, Romina Puga. And, Romina, first of all, this issue of grabbers, has there been any evidence to support what the president has been saying, that essentially uh, p migrants have been using children who aren't theirs as, as shields uh, or as a way to, to, to camouflage themselves or inoculate themselves from potentially being stopped at the border? There isn't. The families we've met have all come together from the beginning. We met a lot of families today, so I can't say that we've seen any of that here today. Romina, what is the scene like on the, on the ground? We have seen uh, tensions flare up at times. We've seen groups try to, to cross into the border. Uh, we've obviously seen the, the tear gas canisters. What is the day by day, the hour by hour like right now on the border? How tense is it? So it's in, we've been here since the morning. It's interesting. Right now we are outside of the stadium where the migrants have set up this tent city. This is their home now. And earlier today this was a quiet road. Not much was happening. Now it's bustling. There are kids playing soccer here on the street. We saw little kids on uh, jungle gyms earlier today. It's a mixed uh, mood of relief and restlessness. I met a woman earlier who showed me the calluses on her feet. She was telling me that she felt like the pain was behind her. She felt relief to be here and to kind of be able to rest after her month-long walk. Take a listen. So they've been here since Sunday. They're finally able to rest a bit, and she's hoping that President Trump finds it in his heart to let them in. ¿Y la foto? She's saying they've already healed. Oh, okay. <laughs> she walked here in sneakers, but now is letting her feet rest in sandals. They hurt just a bit. Y pudiste comprar crema, algo nada, ¿no? No, no venían dando la jornada médica. Ah, okay. Sí. They said that they were um, handed out creams for the calluses on their feet by medics along the way. Romina, Ali so Rogan So there is here. a sense of support. Yeah. Ali Rogan here with Recline on set. There um, incredible resilience being shown by those women you just interviewed. Can you tell us a little bit about how the children um, are feeling? I mean, certainly, I would imagine the pain threshold for them is a little lower than perhaps for some of these adults. Yeah, the children will seem like they aren't really noticing what's happening. Like I said earlier today, they were playing on jungle gyms. They were playing with little toy cars, toys that people have donated here. And now the streets are lively. People are um, playing and playing soccer. And the children seem to be not really realizing what's happening right now. All right, Romina we did, Puga. We did meet one. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Romina. Finish it up. No, we met one woman who was uh, at the border on Sunday, and uh, she was part of the peaceful protest. And when the tear gas started, she ran and hid. She thought she had crossed the border to the U.S. side. And it wasn't until later that day a Mexican man came out of his house and told her she still was in Mexico. But she came back here. Uh, she said she could have, you know, tried to get to the border, but she came back here because she did feel like there was a sense of community and safety to stay with the group here.
All right, Ramina Puga, thank you for reporting down there in Tijuana, Mexico. We appreciate it. We know you'll be on all of our, our ABC shows later in the day and, and through tomorrow uh, reporting on this. And Ali, we talked about the politics of this. The president um, already signaling he's using this, uh, this tension, these renewed uh, pictures and images coming out of there for his part of his call for border wall with a possible government shutdown looming next week. Yeah, absolutely. It's become a very real part of the conversation on the Hill. Uh, the president has requested $5 billion to, for the construction of his wall. And uh, so far, uh, there is a uh, breakdown between what Democrats are willing to give and what Republicans are willing to push for. Republicans have said that the president is insistent. He wants that $5 billion. There's questions about uh, over what period of time could that money be allocated, but Certainly, he is using these images to demonstrate that uh, what he says is a crisis on the border that requires this money. And so far, folks, including moderates like Lindsey Graham on this issue, are saying he's absolutely right. We need to give him this money to build the wall. All right. Ali Rogan, thanks for being here today. That is going to do it for today. Again, we had a White House press briefing. We covered it all. We got through it all. Uh, thanks for being here, here on The Briefing Room. Continue to watch ABC News Live. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Thanks for watching.